You're listening to the World of Higher Education Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2. Hello, and welcome to the World of Higher Education, Episode 1.2, The Yacinda Arden Legacy. Today, my guest is Dave Guerin, Chief Executive and Editor-in-Chief of Tertiary Insight, a higher education news service based in Wellington. Our subject, the higher education record of the recently retired New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. Ardern came to power famously promising to eliminate tuition fees over the courses of three terms in office, only to reverse course after one term with the promise only partially implemented. Maybe the most interesting part of my discussion with Dave was when we talked about the ramifications of that decision. At a technical level, we talked about what is known of the effects of making first year free. Apparently, the answer is that it does make a small difference, but primarily by shifting enrollments from college level to university level. This is consistent, I think, with evidence from places like Tennessee, where eliminating fees in two-year level raised enrollments, but to a substantial degree by shifting them from the four-year system. In other words, relative pricing might be more important than absolute pricing. But Dave's bigger and perhaps more surprising claim is that the U-turn on fees in the 2020 election essentially had no political consequences for Arden. That's almost impossible to imagine in any other country. Perhaps it was because in October 2020, New Zealand's effective COVID-free status made Arden essentially untouchable politically, no matter what policies she discarded. That would make the reaction to her U-turn an understandable anomaly. But in any event, The New Zealand tuition experiment is something that there's a lot more study and exposure. New Zealand's an outlier in many ways, but maybe for precisely that reason, it's a great place to look for policy lessons. Of course, we don't just talk tuition in this episode. Dave and I also chat about the Labour Party's long drift from left to right and back again, the big institutional mergers that led to the creation of the new National Skills and Technology Institute, Tepu Kenya, and the country's changing views on immigration and how that's affecting international student policy. Have a listen. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Well, listen, before we start, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the New Zealand system of tertiary education? What makes it different from the rest of the world? I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, obviously, every part of a system has these little differences that matter when you're in it. But uh, we have a university system which is very similar to um, other Anglophone countries or particularly to Australia and the UK. We have a Institute of Technology and Polytechnic sector, which is our vocational education sector, similar to community colleges. Probably the bigger difference there is since 1990, they've had a, a fairly strong focus on degrees. And so they, they've done that. We also had, up until recently, which we'll get to a bit later, we had an industry training sector, which um, was responsible separately for running apprenticeships and other work-based training. That's now folded in with the, the ITP sector. And we have two other parts. Our private sector is, you know, private sectors wax and wane around the world quite often, according to funding policies, uh, whether the government likes them or not. And at the moment, the last 30 years or so, 30, 40, 30 years, they've been on an upsurge generally. And they have a significant international education enrollment as well as domestic um, and get funding from the government. But lastly, the most unique part is probably the Wānanga system. And so those are state-recognised and funded um, and formally owned, but a little bit different, uh, Māori-focused institutions. Māori are the Indigenous people of New Zealand. 
So there are three of them. There were going to be more, but the government started realising they were costing a lot of money, so closed the closed the entry gates um, soon after they opened them. But there are quite a few private training establishments, private organisations that are affiliated with Maori tribal entities. And just to be clear, you've got a it's a three year undergraduate system uh, in New Zealand, not a four year one. Is that correct? Yes, three year. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Well, you've talked a lot about how things have changed uh, you know, over the last 30 years and the waxing and waning of various things. Your governing Labour Party has traveled quite some ways uh, in more than one direction over the last three or four decades. Back in the early 1990s, it was a pretty neoliberal party, and it introduced tuition fees for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, around 1991, 1992. But by the time uh, Yacinda Ardern uh, arrives as Labour leader, the party has decided that tuition fees have to go. What does is, what is that journey look like? Why does the party change its mind over that period of time? What's the journey? If you look back at the 70s, around the world, we, we, we look at it as a, a difficult time. Oil shortages, stagflation, which we're back to now in some ways, but um, high inflation, oil shortages, and a whole bunch of problems just that had built up in the political systems we had um, around the world. And so, like in New Zealand, we had a reaction to that, as in many other countries. Because we're a small country, we have a single chamber government, uh, parliament, it, it's much easier to change things, and so change they did. Um, so we had, in the early 80s, we had wage and price freezes, we had huge sections of subsidies, we had very strong import controls, and uh, the economy was just very controlled. And so the Labour Party came in and they wanted to free that up, socially and economically. And so a number of people there uh, did things that a traditional Labour Party or any traditional New Zealand Party would not do. There was a backlash to that. I mean, we removed, and I'll make a dig at Canadian dairy here, we removed all of our own farm subsidies um, within about a year or so in New Zealand and had not put them back in. So there was huge social backlash to that. There were a lot of redundancies, there were a lot of people unemployed, um, and we had big problems. And so while the main thrust of those reforms happened, the Labour Party spent 10 or 15 years having an infight. They've come back since the late 90s to have a much stronger traditional Labour approach. And so that's where we, where we got to Jacinda Ardern talking about free tuition fees. In the 2000s, they introduced um, free interest on student loans. And so tuition fees was the next step for the leaders coming in in 2017. Okay, so Jacinda Ardern gets elected in 2017. I think that's right. She She wins. Yeah. Uh, well, she came in second, I suppose, but she put together a, a coalition government. Part of her appeal in that election was a promise of free tuition to be instituted progressively over a number of years. Tell us about that promise and how it was meant to be implemented. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't know how much difference the policy had. I mean, in the, a lot of it was about presentation, right? There's the people, Labour had a series of bad ministers or bad leaders who haven't captured them bad, but they hadn't captured the public imagination. And Jacinda Ardern came in with the same policies as had been there six weeks after the election and suddenly blew the field um, away. So um, I managed to put together a coalition. But so what we had was we had a three-part policy. Um, basically, you had to keep electing them if you wanted to get more free fees. Um, so 2017, you had one um, year of first year of um, tertiary study was free. If you re-elected them in 2020, you get another year. If you re-elected them in 2023, you get another year. And so it would be three years free education at the end. That's pretty canny. I have to, I've never heard anybody anybody else do that. So I think that that's kind of interesting. But then in 2020, there's a change of heart, right? The party walks back the free tuition pledge and says, actually, what we really need to do is spend money on vocational education because that's where dollars are needed most. That's where we've got skill shortages. 
for a lot of people, I would say in North America who looked at New Zealand as, uh, you know, the shining example of free tuition, that that actually shocked a number of people. Tell us about that decision and, and what the repercussions were internally. I don't think anyone really cared. Say the truth. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I, it wasn't a big issue. Funnily enough, it really wasn't. I mean, the government in 2020, the government was spraying cash at anything that moved or even if it didn't, really. Uh, there were huge wage subsidies going on. There was uh, um, extra rent of support. There was, you know, any any part of life that you would think would be made difficult by COVID-19 or any pet project that someone came up with that they could vaguely justify as being COVID-related was getting funding. So there was so much money going to the economy that no one was feeling particularly poor or put upon. And in any case, fees-free wasn't a big, another year of fees-free wasn't going to be a big money spinner. While the first year you could see it reduced a barrier to education, um, it's harder to say that when, you, when you're looking at your second or third year. People are already in there and they have access to an interest-free student loan scheme that covers all of the fees. So very, very few people have to stump up with any money to pay their fees. Uh, so because, and because it's interest-free and it's recovered via the tax system later on, it's a, it's a very simple and painless mechanism for most people. There's really the argument about does that upfront fee for a, someone on the margin or considering whether they go into tertiary education, does that make a difference? Okay, we're going to take a short break. Be right back. Micro-credentials continue to be the most talked about area of innovation in post-secondary education. On the week of February 13th, Higher Education Strategy Associates, in partnership with the Strategic Council, will be releasing a new report on micro-credentials in the Canadian marketplace, a comprehensive analysis of national and international trends, practices, and policies around micro-credentials, as well as a national survey of employers and employees in Canada. If you're a university decision maker tasked with maximizing innovation and value from micro-credentials, this is a report you can't afford to miss. For more information, please contact us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Dave, you were just explaining to us why maybe the best time to walk back a tuition commitment is when you're at 50 or 55% in the polls. But so there was a U-turn in 2020, but they didn't get rid of the first year free policy, right? So you still have this, I think you may be the only country in the world now that has a policy of one year free and the rest you actually have to pay for. Have studies been conducted as to the benefits of this policy? What do we know about uh, the benefits of one year free tuition? There has been some work done, which is fairly inconclusive, really. I'd like to be able to say it says this or that, but it doesn't. The biggest effect we did see was an increase in the proportion of people going to university. So there was a shift within tertiary education market share towards universities. And I'd say the key reason for that was that having free fees for that year really reduced the fear factor of going, of committing to go to university for those who didn't feel academically or culturally or socially prepared for it um, or felt it was a bit foreign, you know, and we've got many students in that, that space. Uh, and also universities generally charge the highest fees. So having free fees made it more attractive to make that jump. Interesting. One other major policy change from the Iron government uh, was the decision to merge all of the country's polytechnics into a single national institution of skills and technology called Tepukenya. Uh, 
two things. Did I pronounce that right? And what can you tell us about this new institution? Um, no, the pronunciation wasn't great, but it's all about trying, really. We don't really expect you to you know, have it right first time, but give it a go. Um, it's Tapukinga, and um, it's a long U, and it's uh, the NG sound is very difficult for, you know, for people who are not familiar with it to deal with. It was a big shift made to merge the vocation, most of the vocational education sector. There were 16 ITPs, Institutes of Technology and Polytechnics, and I'll use that acronym from it now on, and there were about, was about eight nine industry training organizations, ITOs, and industry training organizations looked after apprenticeships and work-based learning, dealt with employers and uh, apprentices and signed a three-way contract with them to, to get people through. Uh, the minister who came in, who's now our prime minister from last week, he wanted to merge all those. Basically, he wanted to see more central coordination um, with the belief that it would lead to more effective use of resources, more ability for the government to tell the sector what it wanted to do. Um, and uh, he he had been holding weekly teleconferences, weekly Zoom sessions with the people responsible for that entity. So he really has been in boots at all. So there was a, a big move to combine everyone, which of course is, you know, a huge job and, and difficult. So it's still a work in progress. It's hard to say whether it's going to work or be a failure at this stage or somewhere in the middle. If you had to bet now, what would you say? I, I think it'll I think it'll muddle through in the end. I mean, it, in the end, you've got people who care a lot and want to do things, but it's whether the system helps or hinders that. Um, and I, I just don't know. And I try and I try and avoid making calls too quickly on that stuff because it will take a long time to work it through. Well, that's probably wise. So apart from all this course, one of the biggest issues of the last six years has been COVID and New Zealand's system of quarantine, uh, which basically kept all foreigners out of the country for what, two years, 24 months? It was, it was, it was a long time. And obviously that affected your, your international education industry. And I have to say, one of the things I've noticed, having been to New Zealand a couple of times in the last few years, is how ferociously well organized your international student effort is so that must have been quite a blow and how you know are things going to return to the status quo ante or is this a permanent shift now that you've you've lost an entire generation of international students you're going to get them back really 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 hard to say actually um i, I mean besides the fact of covid we've also had the labor party that came in in 2017 was moderated a bit through the first few years by being having coalition partners, the last three years it hasn't had a coalition partner, it's had a majority. Um, so their anti-immigration policies have come to the fore. So it's less about a, a xenophobia issue, although there's a bit of dog whistling involved around that, but it's mainly driven by a union-driven approach that mass migration can lower um, wage rates, especially for those at the bottom end of the labour market and unions are concerned about them, and so therefore migration should have a tougher look at. And so while we're coming back from international education, we've got all the challenges of competing through places, places like Canada that are, have opened up earlier and more and, and, and more fully than New Zealand. We've also got an immigration approach which has become much tighter. And so post-study work rights are um, highly restricted now, especially for the uh, vocational education side. Um, and so we've, we've got a few headwinds to deal with. We've got you know, strong competitors, a less positive immigration policy, and a less positive set of ministers, frankly. Interesting. You mentioned that your new Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, was previously Minister of Education. Is he likely to bring a change of emphasis of the government um, in, in this policy area? What can we expect from the your new Prime Minister? I don't think we'll see too much change, really. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's he's been 
running education policy for the last you know five and a half years. So he's and he's been a senior minister through that time, one of the core group of the of of the government. Um, he's certainly trying to change the way he presents things. Uh, he has a different style, particularly a different communication style to the to Jacinda Ardern. So there will be a change there, and he's going, certainly trying to portray himself as focusing more on cost of living and bread and butter issues and so on. But well, he hasn't yet announced any major changes to policies. Okay. Dave Guerin, thank you very much indeed. Cool. Thank you very much. It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course, you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week for episode 1.3, when our guest will be Chris Marsicano, a professor of educational studies at Davidson College in North Carolina, and we'll be discussing how 2023 is shaping up for higher education in the United States of America. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Hold up. 